0: Welcome to the Shortwave Report. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. The Shortwave Report is a 30 minute review of news and opinion heard on the shortwave radio and the internet in Northern California. Listening to international broadcast at home is quite easy. You just need a shortwave radio with the schedule of English language broadcasts or a computer or smartphone with an internet connection. To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com, you can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to Shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, from George Galloway's YouTube channel, NHK Japan, and Radio Havana Cuba. We will begin with Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. First, an interview with Luisa Neubauer, one of the founders of the German school strike for climate, known as Fridays for Future. She discusses news that Germany may extend the use of coal for electricity and the state of climate activism after the pandemic and now the war in Ukraine. A report on decisions made at the G7 meeting in Germany, which focused more on the war in Ukraine and the increase in NATO military buildup than on the climate crisis which had been on the original agenda. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle
1: and we're joined now by Luisa neubauer she is one of the founders of germany's friday for future climate movement and she joins me online from berlin Before we talk about the G7 summit, uh, let's take a look at the broader situation because much of Europe, of course, is now trying to break free from its dependence on Russian oil and gas. The German economy minister, who himself is a member of the Green Party, uh, decided to reactivate coal-fired power plants. Um, Can you sympathize with his dilemma?
2: Well, it's not his dilemma technically. It's a dilemma that you know societies everywhere are in, and especially the the German society, as we're just so dependent on Russian um, gas and oil. And yes, there are big questions now: how to fill the gaps um, in the in the energy systems. But there's just this huge difference between filling in gaps and creating new, lengthy, long-lasting dependency on fossil fuels and their autocrats. Mm. And when, you know, ministers say, okay, you know, for now we have to jiggle around a bit and fill it with, with some coal, that might be fair enough as long as climate demands are still met, as long as we're still sticking to our CO2 budget, meaning maybe, you know, having an earlier coal exit than planned, um, you know, fiddling in to fit in with our climate um, budget right. um, in the long run. Do you have
1: any ideas, uh, any alternatives uh, that you could suggest instead of reactivating coal-fired plants? Or is this basically the only solution we have right now?
2: I am not an energy systems expert and um, they have opinions though And what um, they are saying in in Germany is that for now on, for, for this year and especially for the next winter, yes, it is crucial that we fill in our gas tanks and that means, for instance, for a short amount of time having more coal. But... It must not mean that we open up, for instance, numerous new installed LNG terminals on the German coast, that we do new drillings, and that we create all these new dependencies that drive us even further down the road of climate catastrophe. I mean, 2022, it should be that turning point. It should be that moment where leaders everywhere decide to turn away from fossil fuels as it sparks climate disasters and wars. It should be the time where we look at renewables and understand they are at hand, they are there, they're ready to be installed as as soon as the political
1: will is there. Right. I mean, it must be very frustrating because for many years the uh, Friday for Futures movement was gaining momentum. Then came the pandemic and now the war in Ukraine. This upcoming G7 summit uh, was supposed to focus on climate change. Now the focus is understandably on Ukraine. Do you have a feeling that uh, political leaders have completely lost sight of the climate emergency?
2: Honestly, I don't know what political leaders, um, you know, are looking at and what not. But what it seems like from the outside is that obviously many of them don't want to or cannot understand the emergency we are in. Things are connected. That a war. Fueled and, and financed by fossil fuels is part of the of the big spiral of fossil fuel destruction that is causing wars that is causing the destructions of our livelihoods. Mm. And so, reacting to a fossil fuel war with more fossil fuels it just doesn't make sense, even on a geopolitical level. So, for the sake of the world we inherited, that is there for us to save the future, that is, you know, in in the hands of the leaders right now and in ours certainly, we must stop playing out these crises again each other and right. understanding that there are dots that should be connected.
1: Luisa Neubauer, one of the founders of Germany's Fridays for Future climate movement. Thank you so very much.
3: We begin the day entering the fifth month of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And what seems most certain tonight, there will be many more months until an end to the war becomes plausible and possible. The planning and the decisions made this week by Western countries could all have long time horizons. G7 countries have agreed to place price caps on Russian oil sold abroad. Now, the plan is untested, but if it works, it could deal the final blow to Vladimir Putin's ability to finance the war in Ukraine. The changes at NATO could also be in terms of years, not months. NATO announcing plans to increase its rapid response forces from 40,000 to 300,000. And that will include a sizable increase in the number of U.S. soldiers stationed along NATO's eastern flank, where the alliance and Russia meet head-on. First, this report that begins at the end of the G7 summit in Bavaria.
4: Unity among close allies. That is the symbolic message the G7 aimed to send to the world. Despite a litany of problems facing the planet, the atmosphere at the final session on Tuesday seemed relaxed. On Monday, Ukraine's president joined by video link. Russia's war dominated the talks. The world's seven largest economies and the EU determined to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. But the summit also looked forward to the time after the war.
1: The most important
4: thing is that we want to get together from the perspective of the G7, but also with others, including the European Union, to discuss the question of reconstruction. We need a Marshall Plan for Ukraine, and it needs to be well-planned and developed. That is what we have set out to do. Across the globe, countries are feeling the knock-on effects of the war. So it was good that leaders from the global south joined the summit. Nations like India, Indonesia and Senegal. Among their concerns the fight against hunger. To address that, the G7 and the EU have established a global alliance for food security, pledging over 4 billion euros this year to help those facing the worst shortages. Another major focus of this summit, the battle to protect the climate. Schultz put forward a plan for a climate club, open to all nations willing to commit to the goal of limiting temperature rises to 1.5 degrees and becoming emissions neutral by mid-century. We all agree what the future holds, which is not gas. This is particularly true for Germany. We want our economy to be CO2 neutral in 2045, and that has consequences for the question of the use of fossil resources, whether it's coal, oil or gas. But climate activists, some of whom protested near the summit venue, say extending use of fossil fuels, even for a short time, is the wrong response to energy shortages.
5: angry that leaders uh, at the end uh, commit to long-term targets uh, but not uh, commit to the immediate measures needed uh, to give a clear frame to the industry to phase out fossil fuels and to enter into renewable energy in a much more rapid way.
0: Those reports were from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website, DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. Next, George Galloway interviewed a group of journalists on the emerging two world orders. One of the speakers was Johnny Miller, who is reporting from Donbass in eastern Ukraine. He explains that there are almost no Western reporters on the ground in the region, leading to very incomplete views of what is happening in that region, where civilian areas are being bombed daily by Ukrainian forces with weapons supplied by the U.S. and Europe. He says the Russian-speaking citizens say that they have been under attack since 2014 and that both the Russian and Ukrainian sides are misrepresenting events and the roots of the conflict. George Galloway
4: to the Donbass formerly at least a part of Ukraine and talk to another war and investigative journalist Johnny Miller he's in uh, the Donbass in in Donetsk he's previously covered all kinds of wars Libya Syria uh, and elsewhere and uh, he's there right now let's speak to him Johnny thank you George Johnny, are we getting the true picture of what's happening in Ukraine? You are virtually alone there as a war and investigative reporter on the eastern side. Well,
6: I'm a journalist here in the uh, Donetsk People's Republic, the separatist side, if you will, the pro-Russian side. And so if you're a journalist uh, on one side or the other, you're going to see a very different picture of the war. But what's interesting is that uh, there's almost no... Uh, journalists from a NATO-speaking country, from a mainstream news network here in the east of the country, in Donbass. I'm um, almost certain there's no uh, English-speaking I, British or American journalist from a mainstream news outlet here. So what I can tell you is, in terms of the conflict of what I see here, if I was a journalist on, in, in western Ukraine, I'm no doubt I'd be reporting on Russian strikes. But here in Donbass, in Donetsk, particularly, the stories of Ukrainian strikes, I'm standing right in front of a school right now, what used to be a school it was hit uh just about 10 days ago uh, there was another school just around the corner hit both uh, shelling from the ukrainian uh, army uh, and this story is it's just not being reported whenever i don't have anything else to do as a journalist or have nothing planned i simply follow the sound of the incoming and there's dozens of, of missiles hitting the city every day uh and when i got to the fifth school uh that had been hit on as, in as many days the penny started to drop and i asked my translator a local woman with a two year old daughter herself, is the Ukrainian army intentionally shelling schools. And she replied as if it was the most normal thing in the world. Well, yes, that's what they've been doing for eight years. It's over a hundred schools and kindergartens that have been hit in the last eight years. Uh, And So why is that? It's a very famous speech by Petro Poroshenko, the former Ukrainian president, in which he says, our children in Kiev, will be learning in in, in schools and kindergartens, whereas their their, children Children, i.e., the, the rebel held areas in Donetsk, will be cowering in basements. And that's exactly what they're doing. This conflict is, is in part a proxy war between Russia and NATO, but at its heart, it's also a civil war and an ethno cultural war. Uh, in 2014, uh, a, a nationalist Ukrainian government came to power in Kiev. The first thing they did was stop Russian being used as a state language right-wing militias started going around Ukraine, pulling down Russian statues. And then uh, pro-Russian people started uh, uh, peacefully protesting. Many of them were killed, particularly at an event in Odessa. And so you had the the eastern area of the country rise up. Not far from here here is Lenin Square, the central square in Donetsk. It's a huge statue of Lenin. This is a Russian-speaking, proudly Russian area. And that's why they rose up. And so for the last eight years, and it's incredible, this has just not been covered. That Ukrainian nationalists have been trying to, uh, that's why they've been hitting schools as well, trying to push these Russian people out of their land. That's why you have the separatists rising up. So at its heart, it's a civil war between uh, Ukrainian nationalists and pro Russian separatists.
4: Johnny, wh- how do you think the uh, Western media has become so one sided? Impartiality has uh, become a-, a joke in terms of coverage of this war. As I said,
6: this. There's almost no western journalists here and if they were here i mean some people might agree disagree with me but i think most journalists have some semblance of uh, trying to tell the truth about what's around them and if they were here it's just impossible not to get away from the fact that ukraine is shelling these civilians every day just like most areas of donia my area is being shelled it's 15 meters, literally 15 meters out of my, outside my door, grab missile landed, most of my windows were blown out. I can literally just have to look out my window to see evidence of Ukrainian war crimes. And of course, that uh, truth, I mean, that uh, Russia is being blamed for, for shelling civilians, killing civilians in the west of the country. But the truth is that Ukraine has been doing the same thing for the last eight years. And of course, telling that truth might be uncomfortable. It's much easier just to tell people that Russia, Putin's gone crazy, He's mad, he's invading. But the, the, the truth is a little bit more complicated than that. When this conflict started, or when, when Russia invaded on the 24th of, of February, it was clear to me anyway that there is, a, there, is a, there's a way, there is a way to have peace in Ukraine. It's clear that the East here no longer wants to be part of Ukraine. And it's very understandable. You speak to people here, you can understand why. Uh, and so the, there was a peaceful solution to this at the beginning of giving people in the East, particularly a, a choice, a referendum of what they want to do for the future. But increasingly, as I said, it's become a proxy war between Russia and, and NATO. And don't get me wrong, Russia's pumping out a lot of propaganda as well. Uh, Russia calls this a, a special military operation. Russian journalists on TV have to call it a special military operation. I speak to Russian journalists here and in private, they call it a war and they call it an invasion. Russia has sent its troops into another country, it's an invasion. And and there is some other Russian propaganda, no doubt about it. So it's very much in terms of uh, becoming a proxy war, Uh, Russia is telling its people one thing, and indeed Russia is telling its people every day that they are winning, and Ukraine and NATO are telling their people every day that they are winning. And so there's propaganda going on 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 both sides, Uh, but both sides aren't really telling the truth, or at least telling the whole truth uh, about what's happening here. I feel it's important my work being here as one of the only Western journalists here to try and tell the story of the the separatists, the rebels in this side of of, of the conflict in order to create peace. Every journalist got an angle, and I'll be honest, my angle is uh, trying to create peace here. Whether I'll achieve that, I I don't know, but I'll try to do my best. But in terms of peace to happen, you have to understand both sides of the conflict. You have to understand why the separatists, why the rebels uh, have been fighting uh, for eight years. Uh, There has been some Russian support, but it's unclear about how much there has been this this uprising in this was genuine amongst the people and any journalist here who's come here will, will tell you that. And so it's important for both sides to listen to both sides. And unfortunately, with the propaganda battle that's going on, NATO is being told just to send more weapons. Send more. I saw one headline in a Western outlet I won't, I won't mention, which said, send more weapons to Ukraine to save lives, which is straight out of George Orwell. War is war is peace. Sending more uh, weapons to Ukraine is not going to save lives. It's going to create more death and destruction. Uh, And that's the danger now that's that's happening in Ukraine. The more, it's almost a paradox, the more that NATO supports Ukraine, the more weapons it sends, the more destruction Russia will do to Ukraine. Russia can hit uh, Ukrainian cities at will with its missiles. It's made clear uh, they will do so uh, if NATO continues to send weapons. So you just have this constant uh, war machine on both sides. Uh, grinding, frankly, uh, especially around here, these cities around here into the dust. Every day, you've done yet you to shell by dozens of missiles, almost every day. I'm just saying almost just to cover myself because I'm sure there is the odd day when nobody is killed, but almost every day people are killed. NATO is trying to get insurances from Ukraine that they won't shoot and fire these missiles at Russia. But at least publicly, there's been no assurances from NATO that they won't use these heavy weapons to kill and shell civilians because that's what they've been doing for eight years. So the fear is that NATO weapons, and I think people in NATO, living in NATO countries, may be very concerned to know that schools like this may well be targeted with NATO weapons.
0: That interview was by George Galloway, a 30-year former member of the British Parliament, whose interviews used to be on RT for many years until they were shut down by the European Union. He now posts his shows on YouTube, Search for his channel called George Galloway. On to NHK Japan. NATO held a summit in Madrid with Sweden and Finland applying for membership. The leaders endorsed describing Russia as a direct threat to the alliance and discussed threats in Asia. North Korea accused NATO of attempting to create an Asian version of the military pact. The Taliban asked the international community for support after the deadly earthquake, but many governments do not recognize the Taliban because of their failure to fully protect women's human rights. NHK Japan
7: Leaders of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization have kicked off a two-day summit in Spain. NATO officially invited Sweden and Finland to join. The Nordic countries applied following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which is a key topic at the meeting.
3: NATO has increased its presence uh, uh, in the uh, Baltic-Nordic region. Um, And of course, uh, when they become members, we can do even more together.
7: The invitation came after Turkey agreed to lift its veto of the two nations joining the alliance, which requires unanimous support of its current members. Moscow reacted swiftly. A senior foreign ministry official told reporters the expansion of NATO is a destabilizing factor. Leaders at Wednesday's summit agreed to step up support for Ukraine. They also endorsed a new strategic concept, which describes Russia as a direct threat. NATO is turning its attention toward China as well. It says Beijing poses challenges to its security, interests and values. Leaders of non-NATO states are taking part in the discussions, including Japan's Kishida Fumio and South Korea's Yoon son yo Now, Kishida and Yoon have huddled with the U.S. president on the sidelines of the summit. They reaffirmed their shared commitment to countering the threat from North Korea.
8: A commentary in North Korea's state-run media is denouncing the U.S., Japan and South Korea for trying to create what it calls an Asian version of NATO. The article calls the formation of a security alliance between the three countries a dangerous prelude. The commentary labels the military moves as reckless. It says they will only bring about catastrophic consequences of self-destruction. The news agency also published an article by a North Korean researcher. It warns that NATO may also get involved in issues on the Korean Peninsula. The article also states concerns over the fact that Japan and South Korea are attending the NATO summit for the first time, the Taliban are asking the international community for further support following a deadly earthquake as rescue efforts continue in eastern Afghanistan. At least 1,040 people were killed and more than 1,600 injured in the magnitude 5.9 quake that struck the provinces of Khost and Paktika on Wednesday. A Taliban official spoke to NHK about the situation in the affected areas.
2: All the houses of residents in the affected areas have collapsed. At the
5: moment, tents are urgently needed, along with drinking water and medicines.
8: The Taliban appealed for more support while acknowledging that rescue operations are progressing thanks to neighboring countries and human rights organizations. Countries, including Japan, are indirectly providing emergency aid through international organizations. They have not recognized the Taliban as a legitimate government due due to its failure to fully protect women's human rights.
0: Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan. They are now heard from 9.30 to 10 p.m. at 7355 and 6165 or on the web at www jp. All the times I announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162, Willits, California 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show which I freely distribute to radio stations and the Internet like a listener in Sarasota, Florida did this week. Many, many thanks. We will conclude with Radio Havana, Cuba. The United Nations Human Rights Leader, Michelle Bachelet, called the U.S. Supreme Court dismissal of Roe v. Wade as a huge blow to women's human rights. Japan is experiencing record-shattering heat and an early end of the rainy season. Thousands gathered in Madrid to protest the NATO summit, calling for U.S. troops to withdraw from Europe. Radio Havana, Cuba
5: the decision by the U.S. Supreme Court that overturns the 50-year-old Road versus Wade judgment guarantees access to abortion across the United States has been described by the Human Rights Chief Michel Bachelet as, quote, a huge blow to the human rights of women and to gender equality. The widely anticipated Supreme Court decision by six votes to three was made in the specific case of Dobbs v. Jackson's Women's Health, and Bashley said in a statement that it represents, quote, a major setback for sexual and reproductive health across the United States. The historic decision returns all questions of legality and access to abortion to the individual states. Reacting earlier to the U.S. ruling without making specific reference to it, the United Nations Sexual and Reproductive Health Agency, or the UNFPA, and the World Health Organization, the WHO, noted that a staggering 45% of all abortions around the world are unsafe, making the procedure a leading cause of maternal death. The agreement... Said it was inevitable that more women will die as restrictions by national or regional governments increase. The UNFPA warned, quote, whether abortion is legal or not, it happens all too often. Data shows that restricting access to abortion does not prevent people from seeking abortion, it's, it simply makes it more deadly. According to the agency's 2022 State of World Population Report, nearly half of all pregnancies worldwide are unintended, and over 60% of these may end in abortion. UNFPA points out that more unsafe abortions will occur around the world if access becomes more restricted. Japan is baking under scorching heat as temperatures in the country's capital, Tokyo, broke 150-year-old records for June. A high of 34 degrees Celsius, that is 93 degrees Fahrenheit, was predicted for Tokyo on Tuesday after three successive days of temperatures topping 35 degrees Celsius, 95 Fahrenheit, the worst streak of hot weather in June since records began nearly 150 years ago in 1875. According to the main Nietzsche newspaper, more than 250 people were taken to hospital in Tokyo on Saturday and Sunday for treatment of heat stroke. Again, Fuji News Network reported that another 13 had been hospitalized by 9 a.m. local time on Tuesday. Much of Japan would normally be experiencing the rainy season at this time of year, but on Monday the Japan Meteorological Agency, the JMA, declared the season over in the Kanto region, home to Tokyo and the neighbouring Koshin area, a full 22 days earlier than usual. It was the earliest end to the season since records began in 1951. Amidst the extreme heat, the Japanese government has issued a warning about a power crunch, with authorities asking consumers in the Tokyo area on Tuesday to conserve electricity for a second day. But they added that residents should do what was needed to stay cool and avoid heat stroke. Thousands have gathered in Madrid to protest the NATO summit, opposing military spending by NATO members and calling for U.S. troops to withdraw from Europe. Amid tight security, leaders of the NATO-membered nations will meet in Madrid on Wednesday and Thursday, the 29th and 30th. They will consider, amongst other issues, the request by Finland and Sweden to join the military alliance. Demonstrators sang, quote, Tanks, yes, but of beer with tapets. And they said an increase in defense spending in Europe, urged by NATO, was a threat to peace. Concha Hoyos, a resident of Madrid and a protester, told reporters, I am fed up with this business of arms and killing people. The solution they propose is more arms and wars, and we always pay for it. So we say no to NATO, no to army bases. Let the Americans go and let us alone without weapons and wars.
0: Those reports were from Radio Havana, Cuba. Cuba's website is working well at radiohc.cu, but there are not podcasts up there. On shortwave, Cuba may be heard from noon to 1 p.m. at 15.140 and from 6 p.m. to midnight at either 6,000, 60.60 60, or 61.65. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people like you to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and EU prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows. Please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link. And get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 26th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts. Thanks for listening.